for our scripture reading and turn to Joel chapter 2. So we'll be reading verses 28 through 32 uh, of Joel as our text today. If you need a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can turn to it. Today, Pastor Bruce preaches out of these few verses, the promises of God. So Joel chapter 2 verses 28 through 32, please follow as I read. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show how wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that, that we can find your promises in your word. We thank you for the book of Joel and Pastor Bruce's study through it and his sermons uh, through it, Lord. And we ask that uh, we would continue just to be in your word, to be changed by your word uh, on a daily basis. And just thank you for Pastor Bruce's preparation and be with him now as he preaches. In Jesus' name, amen. Like most people, I'm sure you have often wondered at times, what will the future be like? Whether that future is next week, next month, next year, or even 10 years from now, we all tend to wonder about the future. What will it hold? What will it be like? Some people, though, are extremely afraid of the future. There's actually a term for it. It's called chronophobia, and it's, it's a real thing. Chronophobia is the persistent and even irrational fear of the future or the fear of passing Time. It's a fear that time is slipping away from us, slipping out of our hands. We can't stop it, and, and there's no way to get back the moments that we have lost. It's a fear that we're wasting the days given to us. It's a fear that the, the days won't be as good as the days that are behind. And, and right now, it is rather easy to find ourselves fretting over the future, perhaps even fearing the future. There's, there's no doubt the last two years during COVID, our lives have been disrupted like never before in most of our lifetimes. You add to COVID on top of that, there is now increasing crime in our cities across our country. We have the, the soaring inflation that we're now dealing with. We have the impending, what seems like an impending invasion of Russia into Ukraine. And how's that going to impact my life? How's it going to impact the economy, even here in the States and around the world? What does all this mean? What does the future hold? What is the future going to be like? And so it's no surprise that even today, perhaps even among you here this morning, many of us are anxious about the future, if not fearful about the future. I, for one, that's why I'm rather thankful for the practical and relevant truth of God's Word here in the Old Testament book of Joel. The prophet Joel was actually looking forward to the future. As a prophet of God, Joel saw the future called the day of the Lord, a time when God will interrupt human history to, to judge his enemies and make all things right. 
And so the question becomes, well, how does Joel see the day of the Lord now playing out in the course of human history? So let me just tell you up front here. Let me tell you the, the idea, the big idea of what we're going to see here in this passage of Scripture before us here in Joel chapter 2. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Here's what Joel sees. We can summarize it this way in all of chapter, the end of here, chapter 2, and even into chapter 3, as we will pick up next Sunday. But Joel sees a coming day, what he refers to as the day of the Lord. And he sees this coming day as a day of salvation and blessing for those who turn to the Lord, but he also sees it as a day of judgment and destruction for those who turn away from the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a, is a major theme here in the book of Joel. In fact, Joel refers to three important events, and he alludes to them all. He refers to all three of these events as the day of the Lord. We already saw the first two here. The first one, Joel sees the locust plague. We looked at that in chapter 1. He sees the locust plague as an immediate day of the Lord in his lifetime. And that what was happening in his culture nationally there in the land of Judah. Joel used that natural disaster. We might even say supernatural disaster because we know God was the one that caused it. He is the one that brought the locust plague into the land of Judah on his people. And Joel actually uses that disaster as a wake-up call to warn present and future generations to now turn to the Lord because it was a prelude for what was coming next. Joel sees the, the army invasion by Assyria as an imminent day of the Lord. That's, that's mainly what he talks about here in Joel chapter 2. And Joel sounded the alarm because of that. He sounds the alarm that the day the Lord is near, but he also sounds the alarm because the mercy of the Lord is here now. So turn to the Lord, he says. He summons the people. The mercy of the Lord is here. Turn to the Lord in repentance of sin and dependence on Him. And in response, we learn that God, motivated by His own jealousy for His own name and out of compassion for His people, in response to their turning to Him, he was moved to relent his wrath and restore his people. And all of this points to what Joel sees next. He sees the final judgment of the nations and the restoration of God's people as the ultimate day of the Lord. And this is what we now see. It's what we're going to be talking about here in verses at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And this prophecy by Joel will find its final fulfillment when Jesus returns to intervene on Israel's behalf, to judge the nations of the earth, and then establish His people in their land in the millennial kingdom. Now, it seems throughout the book of Joel here that he has compressed together, we might say in a prophetic fashion, events that are now separated by hundreds of years. So at this point, it helps us to kind of step back in and kind of remember the unique perspective that much of the Old Testament prophets had. Prophets often spoke about the future as one collage of events without really indicating to us how far apart the fulfillment of those events would be. In fact, some Bible scholars illustrate this. In fact, it's coming up on the screen behind me. They illustrate this with what they call mountain peaks of prophecy. 
one pastor and author writes, and I, I quote what he says here, there are occasions when from one perspective, a whole mountain range can look like a single mountain. That's in the first image. It's not until driving a bit further that you can discern how far apart the mountain peaks really are, like in the second image. The first image illustrates a prophet's perspective. He sees the mountain peaks of future events, but doesn't always tell us how far apart each fulfillment will be. For that, we must drive further into the New Testament to gain more revelation from God about these prophecies. Now, for us here this morning, what I want us to see is that Joel was looking forward to this future day of the Lord. You say, why is that? Because Joel knew that the Lord, the day of the Lord here, it promises both holy justice for God's enemies and hopeful joy for God's people. In other words, the day of the Lord that is coming, it is a day of justice and it is a day of joy. It delivers God's judgment to those who reject God. But it also carries with it his deliverance for those who embrace God. And so this is what Joel sees. He's looking forward to this day, but all of this begs the question. Well, how can we be so sure? How can we be so sure about this day of the Lord? In other words, how can we be so sure that God will actually save us when we turn to Him, when the day of the Lord comes? And Joel's answer is this. We can be sure because God gives us his word. That's why. God's word is trustworthy. God always, always does what he says. God always keeps his promises. And that comes right out of the pages of what Joel says here in this particular passage of scripture here. Notice it in your Bibles. Two times, twice, God says, and it shall come to pass. God says this at the beginning of verse 29, and it shall come to pass. He says it again at the beginning of verse 32, and it shall come to pass. And when God says something's going to come to pass, listen, folks, you can bank on it. It will come to pass. Then three different times throughout this passage, God says, I will, I will, I will. In other words, God says, I'm going to do something. He says it in verse 28. He says it again in verse 29. He says it in verse 30. And when God says he will do something, you can be sure that God will do it. God has proven this time after time after time, all throughout the Old Testament with God's people. What he says he will do, he does. When God makes a promise, he keeps those promises. And then Joel, he ends by emphasizing this is what the Lord has said. In verse 32, did you notice it? As the Lord has said, Joel says. He's emphasizing that this is what God has said he's going to do. The Lord has said this. And so how can we be sure that God will save us on the day of the Lord when we turn to him? Listen, we can be for sure. We can know this with confidence because God gives us his word. In fact, in doing so, God makes three promises that we can be sure that God will keep. That's what I want us to look at is each one of those three promises here. Number one, the first promise that God makes, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. He says, I will pour out 
my spirit on all people. Notice again what he says in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh or on all people. Now, Joel doesn't specify here when God will do this. He only tells us that God will do this, quote, afterward or sometime after the Lord restored his people from the locust plague, as he described in the previous verses, 18 through 27. So Joel didn't know exactly when this outpouring of God's Spirit would take place. All Joel knows is that God promised to do something here. God promised to pour out His Spirit sometime in the future with the coming day of the Lord. And when God speaks of this pouring out of His Spirit, don't think of some impersonal force here. Don't think of some divine energy. Listen, this is the gift of God Himself, the third person of the Trinity. One commentator writes, Joel brings the good news of an even greater blessing. He prophesies about a climax in God's redemptive work that exceeds the restoration of the years the locust has eaten. God promises that with the coming of this great day, he will pour out his spirit on people from all the nations of the world. That is the greatest blessing he can give. It binds them intimately and inseparably to him. It provides them with unlimited power to serve and glorify him. So what does God mean by this? What does it mean that God will, quote, pour out his spirit? Well, it simply means that the Lord will give himself to his people and he will do so without holding back. The same word, pour out, it it actually appears in Scripture, oftentimes in the Old Testament, about God pouring out his wrath. That is, releasing the full brunt of his holy, righteous anger against sin But here, now, it is being used in relation to the full gift of His Spirit. And the blessing of God's Spirit, it will not be like some fall drizzle of rain. Rather, it will be like a springtime downpour of rain. The same word is used earlier here in Joel chapter 2 when God promised to cause the rain to pour down on the land of Judah. And so God... Think about this. He will not be stingy with his spirit. God will be generous when it comes to pouring out his spirit. And notice who receives the spirit. Who receives the gift of his spirit? He says all flesh will or all people. Now that doesn't mean all people without exception as if to say every person on earth is going to receive God's spirit. That's not what it means here. Rather, it means all people, regardless of age, regardless of their gender, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their economic status, they are the ones who will receive God's Spirit because they are the ones who are now part of the community of God. We see this in the rest of verses 28 and 29 when it says, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. In other words, God will pour out his spirit on all his people without discrimination of age, gender, race, or status. Now, you just got to stop right there and take all that in. Because that is huge. This is a big 
big deal. Because to this point in Israel's history, the Spirit of God was poured out on chosen individuals, like kings and priests and prophets. The Spirit empowered them to lead and judge and mediate and to speak on God's behalf. But not everyone enjoyed this blessing as it was largely given to chosen individuals. Individuals like Moses, for example. Moses wished that all God's people had the Spirit like he did. You go back to Numbers chapter 11 And there in that passage of Scripture, God actually takes his spirit that was on Moses and he now gives it to 70 elders of Israel. And you know what they began to do? Prophesy. And then two other guys were given the spirit of God and they start prophesying too, but they're not with the 70 elders. They're somewhere else in the camp with the people. And all of a sudden that raises some concerns among God's people in the camp. So much so that young Joshua runs and tells Moses in verse 27, Moses, Moses, my Lord, stop them from doing that. And Moses answers back in verse 29, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. And so Moses wished that everyone in the community of God had the spirit just like he enjoyed it. Well, that longing of Moses now gets picked up here by Joel. And the Lord says that a day is coming when he will pour out his spirit on all people who are part of his community, not just on a select few people. And for what purpose? Well, we can summarize this, to to spread the knowledge of God and to do so through prophecies, dreams, and visions, which are all various means that God used specifically through the Old Testament to reveal himself and to reveal his purposes to God's people. In other words, the Spirit would enable all God's people now to participate in spreading the fame of God's name to all the nations. This is, is what God is promising, and it's a big deal. The second promise God makes in this passage is number two. Second of all, he makes another promise here when he says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. I'm going to show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Now, we need to understand that God's promise to pour out his spirit is placed in the context of the day of the Lord. God promises that before the day the Lord comes, there will be this remarkable outpouring of his spirit that is also accompanied by supernatural wonders of his judgment in the heavens and on the earth. Look what God says. Look at it in your Bibles, verses 30 and 31. God says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, God will use these wonders of his as a, as a warning of his coming judgment in the day of the Lord. These wonders on earth, which God identifies as blood, fire, and smoke, are all normally associated with war. 
Joel's already prepared us for these wonders in the heavens in Joel 2.10, where he says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. You fast forward. Jesus, when he, he was here on earth, he spoke about similar wonders when describing the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 24, 29, when Jesus says immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The prophet Isaiah, going back now to the Old Testament, describes the day of the Lord this way in Isaiah 13, 6 through 10. He says, well... For the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, everyone's hands will become weak and every man will lose heart. They will be horrified. Pain and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look at each other, their faces flushed with fear. Look, the day of the Lord is coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the earth a desolation and destroy its sinners. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. The book of Revelation, the very last book of God's Word, picks up on this, this same apocalyptic language. And in each case, the, the supreme reality is the dread that is inspired by these wonders of God in the heavens and on the earth, which now signal the coming day of the Lord. Likewise, Joel here is saying that when the day of the Lord comes, people will be dismayed. They will be horrified, and their faces will be flushed with fear. They will see disaster coming upon them. They will know at that moment that God is the one who is on the move to judge his enemies, and they will be powerless before his judgment and might. In other words, there will be no escape. There will be no way to hide from God's all-consuming wrath. In fact, Joel, even in verse 32, he includes subtly this little warning that living even in Mount Zion, living in Jerusalem, will be no guarantee of surviving that day of judgment. It will be terrible and horrific for everyone. In fact, the whole thrust of this day is judgment and destruction. It will inspire utter dread and deep fear for both Israel and the nations alike when it comes. So it's no wonder that Joel reminds us of this question that he asked back in chapter 2, verse 11. For the day the Lord is great, it is very awesome. Who can endure it? And the answer is nobody. That is, nobody on their own, nobody in their sins can endure the day of the Lord. And of course, that begs the following question, well, who then? Is there any hope of escape on this coming day of the Lord? And the answer is yes. But folks, listen to me. If we here, if we're not careful, 
Sometimes we can read these vivid descriptions of God's coming judgment and we can just somehow dismiss them as myths. They're not true, it's not really. The prophets and the writers are just using these words to kind of as an analogy, it's descriptive, it's, it's not literal. And we can dismiss all this and what we find in God's word without giving any thought to what it means for our lives. Listen, if we believe God's word is true, and if we know that the day of the Lord is a coming reality, then we can't just dismiss this prophecy as something that is irrelevant to our lives as sometimes we are tempted to do. Listen, the promise of God's judgment, it should lead us to consider, what do we do? Is there any escape? And if so, what does that mean for me? And that brings us to God's third promise in this passage. God makes this promise as well. He says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. Listen, the day the Lord is coming, and it will be a day of judgment and destruction. But thankfully, oh, thankfully, Joel does not leave us here with a mere sense of doom and gloom. He actually gives us hope of salvation that is found in no one else but the Lord. Joel says in verse 32, look at it, and it shall come to pass. In other words, bank on it. Bank your life on this. It will happen that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Joel is making very clear here for us that the only way to escape God's coming judgment and to dwell safely in God's presence is by calling on the name of the Lord. And so we see that there there is an escape from God's wrath. There there is a refuge from the storm of destruction that is coming. And this refuge is not found in anything that we might manipulate or that we might construct to escape for ourselves. No, this refuge is found in God himself, the one who saves sinners like us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. But Joel says we have to do something. We must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. What does that mean? Well, calling on the Lord's name it isn't just a matter of saying the Lord's name. It's not even a matter of saying the Lord's name over and over and over again. If somehow there's magic in just saying the Lord's name. Calling on the Lord's name means that, that you have come to an awareness in your own life that you are unable to save yourself, no matter how hard you try. You can't do enough good works. You can't be a good enough person. There is no none righteous in you and yourself. And so what do you do? You cast yourself on the Lord as your only hope, calling on the Lord's name that, that you trust in His power. You trust in His provision of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ to save you. And so we must call on the name of the Lord in believing faith that he will save us. Paul picks up on this. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, where he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then, three verses later, it's interesting, what does Paul do? He now quotes Joel in verse 13 of Romans 10, where he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Now, just so we don't miss it, notice how great this salvation is. Because this is a glorious, awesome salvation that God provides for us. Notice how great this salvation is in the rest of verse 32. And we're back in Joel here, Joel chapter 2, verse 32, where the Lord says, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who, what? There shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. In other words, back in chapter 2, the day the Lord is so ominous that Joel asks the question, who can endure it? In other words, who, who can even stand before God's judgment and escape it? And now Joel is telling us, listen, there shall be those who escape. And the question becomes, well, who are those people? Who, who are these, quote, survivors on the day of the Lord? And in the very immediate context of Joel, these survivors, listen, they are the restored remnant of God's people known as Israel, whom God will regather to his land and who will return to their Messiah and will enter into the millennial kingdom. We'll see that next Sunday. But we also saw from Paul that these, quote, survivors by application also include God's church, us here today, everyone who calls on Jesus Christ in believing faith. So these survivors on the day of the Lord, that is, those who survived the Lord's judgment, they are defined now by two phrases that Joel uses. Don't miss this. Joel defines these people by two phrases. The first phrase is those who call on the Lord. And the second phrase is those whom the Lord calls. Interesting. And what Joel is pointing out to us here, what he wants us to see and be aware of, is that we are seeing here the sovereign initiative of God in calling people, and at the same time, the responsibility of people to respond by calling on the name of the Lord. But lest we take any credit in our salvation, lest we boast in ourselves that we have something to do with this, listen, make no mistake about it, God's calling enables our calling on His name. Which means that our salvation belongs to the Lord, not us. As one pastor and author writes, when it comes to salvation, we bring the sin that makes salvation necessary, and God brings everything else. Now, I don't know about you, but this is super, super, super encouraging here. 
This is a hallelujah moment, praise God. This is encouraging to the soul for us to know and to remember that our salvation belongs to the Lord and not ourselves. That is, our salvation is not by chance. It is not a result of some complicated web of human factors that that somehow mysteriously brings us to God. No, rather, we are saved because of a merciful, because of a gracious God who has called us to himself. What hope we have in the Lord. Now, at this point, we need to stop, or at least pause, and consider something that took place in the New Testament in the book of Acts. We need to consider Peter, Peter's quote of Joel's prophecy on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And let me just tell you what I think Peter means and what he's doing by quoting Joel here in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. This is in your notes coming up on the screen. Here's what I think Peter's doing. Peter quoted Joel to explain what happened on the day of Pentecost when followers of Jesus were filled with God's Spirit and they began to praise God in various languages. So that's the overall thing, what I think's happening and what I think Peter's doing when he quotes Joel chapter 2. But let me give you the context behind all this. Jesus has just died on the cross for our sins. God has raised him from the dead. And for 40 days, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And before Jesus ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, he tells the disciples something unique, that the Holy Spirit will empower them in the coming days. We're familiar with what Jesus said back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And lo and behold, what's happening? That happens in chapter 1 of Acts. Jesus says this. And we get to chapter 2 of Acts, and sure enough, Jesus pours out his spirit, just as Peter says in Acts chapter 2. And we see this. Peter affirms this in verse 33 when he says, Therefore, since he has been exalted, that is, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So what is it? that they have seen and heard. Well, look what it says at the beginning of the chapter here in Acts 2. If you have your Bibles, I I encourage you to turn there. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're going to read all this whole passage. Look what it says. This is what they saw and heard that Peter's referring to now. It says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, They were all together in one place. That is, they is the disciples of Jesus Christ and other followers of Jesus Christ, all right? So they've all come together for a worship service. They're all together in one place. And then suddenly, according to verse 2, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven. And it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Verse 4, and then... Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Verse 5, now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, 
devout people from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. And we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues or our own languages. So what in the world's going on here? What's going on is Jesus pours out his spirit just as he promised he would do. And the result of that pouring out of the Spirit is that these believers start praising God and declaring His mighty works in various languages. And it's amazing. In fact, it says in verses 12 and 13, they were all astounded, that is people that heard this and saw this, and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Of course, some of them weren't so impressed, and they sneered and said, They're drunk on new wine. But Peter, oh, he knows his Old Testament. He stands up with the 11 disciples and raising his voice to get everyone's attention, he says in verses 14 and 17, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Basically, Peter is saying to them, listen, Joel told you this would happen. And now it has happened, and it's amazing. And Peter continues now to quote the rest of Joel's prophecy, but he made a slight change at the very beginning. Did you notice it? Did you catch it? Joel 2.28 says, and it shall come to pass afterward. But Peter here, when he quotes Joel, he says, and it will be in the last days. And so what Peter does, he takes the liberty to interpret Joel for us here. He, he, in his understanding, he understood Joel's afterward as the last days. You're like, what's the last days? The last days stretch from Jesus' resurrection. Some people think the day of Pentecost here we're talking about in Acts chapter 2, but we'll say the last days stretch from Jesus' resurrection all the way to when Jesus returns. That is the last days. And the last days, by the way, are the days that we are living in right now. And by the way, on top of that, those last days that we are living in now are characterized Beyond many things, at least this thing, they are characterized by Jesus doing something. Jesus pouring out his spirit upon his people, causing his people to now be witnesses in spreading the fame of God's name among all the nations. This is what's taken place in the last days. Started at Pentecost, and it continues even on now. And so Peter used Joel's prophecy to declare that the promised Spirit of God had come. And this is why the believers were now praising God. It's why they were doing it in various tongues and proclaiming the mighty works of God. And Peter clearly said, 
that such was the case in verse 16 when he says this was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Now the question becomes, and by the way, it's a question that there are various views on the answer to it. There is much debate as to the answer to this question. And the question is, was Joel's prophecy fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, as we just read about? And my answer would be, well, yes and no. Let me explain. Though Peter quotes here all of Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, this does not mean that all the events described in those verses of Joel would occur at the same time. Even in Peter's day, the wonders that God will show before the day the Lord comes were yet to be manifested. They were not manifested on the day of Pentecost. Even now, they have not, we're still waiting for them to be manifested. And yet, and yet, in his sermon, and even Peter's remarks after the sermon, they are intertwined. It's laced with Joel's prophecy, Joel's message. Like when Peter says later on in Acts 2, verses 38 and 39, he says, repent. Well, Joel said that. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's what Joel was saying. Which also means that the gift of the Spirit is part of God's redemptive work today when one calls on the Lord in repentance of sin and believing faith in Jesus Christ. And so it seems, and from my perspective or my study, this is what I would believe, it seems that Peter's point here is that what happened on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of God's Spirit is simply a preview in a series of events that will now culminate in the ultimate fulfillment of Joel's prophecy on the day of the Lord. In other words, Christ's promise of the Spirit was directly fulfilled on that day. It continues to be fulfilled. And Joel's prophecy was initially fulfilled. And yet, there are some aspects of Joel's prophecy that still await its final fulfillment in the millennial kingdom where Israel will enjoy the physical blessing of God's presence on earth prior to eternity in the new creation. We'll see that next Sunday in Joel chapter 3. That's what he's talking about. Now, I get it. Some of you about now are thinking, Okay, Bruce, that's nice. I'm glad you gave me that history lesson. But so what? What's the big deal? And why should I care, right? You took an awful lot of time to explain that. What's the big deal and why should I care? Well, the big deal is this. God is keeping his promises. That's the big deal. And Joel is showing us, and Peter is showing us, that what happened on Pentecost, and even continues to happen through these last days, it all shows us that God is keeping His promises. He will keep His promises to restore Israel and to redeem the church on the day of the Lord. Think of it this way. The gift of the Holy Spirit that we receive at the moment of salvation 
It's like a down payment on God's future promises. God is trustworthy, folks. What God promises he will do, he will do. Bank your life on it. And you should care about all this because God's promises make a huge impact on our lives if we will allow it to. Listen, we're living in a day and age, we live in a culture where there are so many people that are living in fear. They're living in fear of the future, fear of the present. They're no different than Joy Bear, who just recently said on The View, I'm going to wear a mask indefinitely. Because she's in fear of COVID indefinitely. There are people who are living in fear of what's going to happen if Russia invades Ukraine. How is that going to impact my life? What's that going to mean for the U.S. and the economy? Our gas price is going to go up even more. They're in fear of this and fear of that. They're living in fear. And Joel comes to us, and these minor prophets like Joel, man, they give us comfort. They give us hope. They encourage our soul to trust the Lord because they are making prophecies that the Lord will keep, and you can bank your life on it. They make a difference, at least they should, in how we view life and how our perspective is. And when we see the news and we see what's happening, as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't fret over the future because we know who holds the future. We know the end of the future, the story at the end. We know what's going to happen here, folks. God is going to restore his people of Israel. He's going to redeem his church on the day of the Lord. We are going to live with him for all eternity with his presence in his kingdom under his rule, and it will be the most glorious thing. But until then, we persevere with hope in the promises of God. So how do we apply all this? Let me leave you with three ways to apply God's promises today. Number one, Man, leave here knowing. Knowing what? Knowing that your salvation in the Lord is secure. Listen, hearing about the day of the Lord, it is easy to simply focus on all the judgment and God's wrath. And that's what the world tends to focus on when we talk about the Old Testament. They think the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament, as if we serve two different gods. Simply not true. I hope you have seen that the God of The Old Testament is a God of mercy and grace, as Joel told us. And yet, I understand, when we talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God that is to come on the day of the Lord, it can dismay us. It can somewhat freak us out a little bit. And in a world that ignores the reality of God's judgment, listen, let us here, as God's people, let us embrace God's truth when he says in Joel 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So let us leave here knowing that our salvation in the Lord is secure. We can be confident that God has called us out of our sin and to himself. And if God calls us, we can be sure that he will save us and he will keep us. For we rest on the assurance of a God who accomplishes his salvation for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So know that your salvation in the Lord is secure. Number two, if you haven't already, call on the Lord's name for salvation before it's too late. 
Listen, when you consider that the day of the Lord is coming, and that that day will be a terrible day of judgment for the unrighteous, listen, we, we are immediately confronted with the reality of our own standing before a holy God. And so let us be reminded here now that we cannot live each passing day as just another day to do whatever we please. We must live each day with reference to this day of the Lord. And we need to ask ourselves, am I ready for this coming day? It's interesting, after Peter's sermon, the crowd asked Peter, what should we do? And Peter tells them, he urges them in verses 38 and 39, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter's basically saying what Joel said, call on the name of the Lord. Listen, the grace and the mercy of God's salvation is that it's not too late to turn to the Lord for salvation. But we better not presume on God's patience. For the day of the Lord is coming, and then it will be too late. And then number three, let us leave here proclaiming the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ to the lost. Listen, in a world where many things call for our attention, call for our priorities, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming, it helps us to see what's most important in life. It helps us to see the urgent need to proclaim the promise of salvation in Christ to those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And so may we have the urgency and the compassion to share the hope of the gospel with them because this great and terrifying day will one day come. What will the future be like? Well, Joel tells us that he sees a day of salvation. He sees a day of blessing for those who turn to the Lord, but a day of judgment and destruction for those who turn away from the Lord. Listen, the more important question, rather than asking what will the future be like, the more important question for us to ask is, what is my response to this coming day? And am I ready? With your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do a work, that your spirit would do a work in our hearts through the truth of your word. Lord, you would convict us where we need to be convicted. You would reveal sin where sin needs to be confessed. And Lord, you would help us to see the urgency and the priority of living in honor of you. Lord, that we would also see the need to proclaim this hope of salvation in Jesus Christ to those who don't know him. And so, Lord, again we ask that you would go forth and you would move among us, you would move in our hearts, you would move in our church and make us ready for this coming day. In your name we pray, amen.